Would you please be seated? like to welcome you guys into Crossroads. If you're joining us here in person or if you're joining us online, we're, we're glad that you're here with us today. Uh, I want to ask you a question as we get ready to jump in. You got to think a little bit here. Some of you may have to think a little harder than others on this or a little longer than others on this, but think back to when you were a kid or a student growing up, okay? Again, some of you you have to think a little while on this, okay? Some of you, you know, it's like, oh, that was yesterday, you know? I won't point fingers and say who's who. You can figure that out on your own, but some of you may think a little bit. Uh, I, I think about growing up, uh, I grew up in the church. I was blessed to get to grow up in the church. Uh, I've, I've told you before, uh, growing up in a town called Miami, Oklahoma, I grew up at the First Assembly of God Church there, and for the town of Miami, that was actually a good-sized church. We had probably two or 300 people there. Uh, our town wasn't a very big town, but uh, we had a decent-sized church. We had uh, Sunday school. We went grade by grade, kind of coming up through Sunday school. And I think we probably had 10 or 12, maybe 13, 14 kids my age that we stayed together kind of grade after grade. And after Sunday school every week, we would go to children's church because we were super creative with how we named things back then. Uh, so we'd go to children's church during, you know, big people church. We were just in the building next door. And we'd have our own service. We'd have music. Uh, we'd have a lesson by one of our teachers. And that was kind of our thing. We actually, too, built a, a lot of what we did kind of throughout the year towards uh, uh, the, these dramas, these musicals that we would put on that the kids did. And, and twice a year, once at Christmas and once in the summer, we did one of these. Uh, I'm not going to brag too much or anything, but I did get the lead role of, as Josiah in, in one called Good Kings Come in Small Packages. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> I just got to say, I'm pretty sure that was the last one that, that we did. So I'm like, I don't, I think it was just like, you know, curse at the bar so high that we can't top that next year. Um, or maybe it was, it was so embarrassing. We're not going to do this again next year. I don't know for sure which one it was, but uh, you know, you can kind of fill that gap in. But when I was about fifth grade, maybe coming into my sixth grade year or so, my parents decided to, to switch to a different church. Just some stuff was going on. And so we started attending uh, the First Assembly of God Church in Commerce, Oklahoma, which is right next to my hometown. It's where my wife's from. It's my dad's hometown. This was a small church, like maybe 75 people that attended. I was the youth group. I don't mean that to say like I was the social glue or like I was the one that lit the room up. No, like I literally was the youth group. It was just me and a few adults. And uh, I got my first camp experience with that, which I hated every second of it. It was just a miserable week for me. Never wanted to go back. Uh, and and I, I love the fact that our, our pastor of the church, he was basically like family. It was my uncle's brother. His wife just bent over backwards trying to give me a youth group. And I was so grateful for what she did for that. But, but I was it. We, we would bring a youth pastor in for a, a while, and they might bring some people with them, but they didn't normally stick around too long, and the kids would leave with them. When I got into high school, I went back to the church I grew up in and landed in that youth group. We had a new youth pastor come in, uh, ironically enough, named Phil, um, and um, he uh, still is, is an important part of my life. Uh, but I thought about how that shaped me and how I got into college, and then I started being a youth sponsor in church and helped lead a youth group for a few years, and then got into teaching and taught high school for a few years. And I learned through that process, especially as I taught into my late 20s and, and getting into about the, the age of 30, I learned two things. Number one, I care deeply about that demographic 
And number two, I'm not wired and created to be the one to reach into them. And, and I'm okay with that. But what that led me to is this realization that as a church, that's a focus we can't take our eyes off of. And we've been in this series the last five weeks called Adverbs. We're going to wrap this series up today. If you've missed any part of this, uh, this is a series, today's the sixth one, where we're working through what I call my personal ministry core values. And I'm hoping as a church we adopt these and we make these a focus. Again, this is not an, an exhaustive list. You may go through these and go, uh, well, what about you know, this or that? You didn't talk about that. It doesn't mean I don't care about it. It doesn't mean we won't do it. But where my heart ultimately lies has been laid out in these last five weeks and wrapping up today with, with what might be the most important of all of these to me. And today's adverb is simply the word boldly. We said that we put a, a statement on each one of these adverbs, we tacked a, or each one of these core values, we tacked an adverb to it, because I don't want to just say what we're going to do, I want to say how we're going to do it. So with boldly, the statement is like this, as a church, Crossroads, we will boldly invest in the next generation. And let me just say from the top, this is, a, <laughs> this is one I am not really willing to budge much on. This is a, a deeply personal issue for me. Especially as I look at my kids, when I, when I wrote these core values, I was fresh into ministry. My, my second child who's sitting over here in the, <clears throat> the room today was a baby, an infant, when I wrote these down. And now my oldest is a few weeks away from getting ready to step into sixth grade and go into a student ministry group. And, and I still feel just as strongly about this now as a dad as I did as a pastor back then. But when I say that we'll boldly invest in the next generation, what I mean is this. At Crossroads, we're a community where children and youth are highly valued. So we want to boldly and radically invest in the next generation so that the future of our church and the future of our community will grow up to understand and know God. We want the next generation of Crossroads to grow into spiritual maturity as they also grow into physical and emotional maturity. So we challenge all of our kids. I know there's some kids in the room. We challenge all of you at Crossroads to learn to follow Jesus every single day. And for you adults in the room, we challenge all of you who call Crossroads home to radically and boldly invest in the next generation by giving of your resources, your time, your effort, your energy to make sure the future of this church is strong. I, I think a lot about scenarios, theoreticals that, that may never actually happen. And some of you think the same way. One of the things that a lot of us tend to think about is what would we do if somebody broke into our home? What would you do if some intruder came in, maybe in the night, how would you respond? You may say, well, the first thing I'd do is I'd, I'd grab a weapon and confront him. Or maybe your response is, I would get my family in a closet and lock the door and, and, and keep them safe. Or, you know, maybe we'd try to sneak out the back door. Maybe I'd, maybe I'd go confront the person and try to talk to them. You have all these ideas and scenarios of what you would do. And a lot of times we're good at talking a big game. But if we actually did come face-to-face -face with that person, most of us probably aren't going to respond exactly the way that we think that we would. And I've known some of my friends who have said, you know, they've talked to the big game. Well, if they walked into my house, that would be the last thing they did. And one of them had actually happened, and he <laughs> took his family around the back door. You know, and probably was the smart thing to do, but he didn't match what he, he thought. You know, the scenario when it actually happened was different than the theoretical in his head. We're living in a world today where we have an intruder that has intruded our world. And it's an intruder that is attacking our young generations right now. When we're talking about young generations, we're talking about two specifically, one called Generation Z, one called Generation Alpha. 
Uh, we, we think about, you know, the boomers and the Gen X and the millennials. That's most of us in the room today. Uh, boomers are the ones that were born after World War II up into the mid-60s. Gen X was mid-60s to the early 80s. Millennials from early 80s to around 2000-ish. I'm one of those on the cutoff of Gen X and millennial. But Gen Z are the ones that were born after, after 2000, after the turn of the century. And Gen Alpha are the ones in grade school today. And we think about these generations that are being attacked by an enemy that we can't see. We know that it's there, but we can't see this enemy. And often I think our, our default response is we just feel helpless about it. We don't know what to do about it. And I think part of it is because we don't know the generation that we're dealing with. This is a generation that is being raised, Alpha and, and Z, they're being raised in a culture of fear. And they don't even realize it. Because for them, that's just what they know. You may say, how are they being raised in fear? I'll illustrate it like this. My, my kids are, are 10 and a half, 8, and almost 5 now. They've flown commercially more than many adults have. Because we lived on the West Coast, we flew back this direction a lot. They've flown more than my parents have flown commercially. And yet, they've never once walked onto a plane and not had to watch me take my shoes off and my belt off and empty my bag and empty my pockets. Or, or maybe when we had a, you know, a diaper bag go through, have to have it taken apart, have all the stuff checked. They've never once seen... That happened. I've never flown by myself and have other kids on the plane not have to watch me do all those same things too. Why? Because once upon a time, somebody tried to sneak something on a plane in their shoes and now we want to make sure it doesn't happen again. And I get it, there's things called precautions. Those are good things. But fear, okay, fear can be a good companion at times, but fear's a terrible leader. And we're letting fear lead us as leaders, whether that's in the church, in the community, in the state, federal government, whatever, all levels Parents even, we parent based off of fear. Uh, I think about how this is a generation of helicopter parents. We, we hover over our kids making sure nothing bad could possibly happen to them. And I've, I've seen parents, they don't even want their kids to, to fall over when they're learning to walk. Or they, they're afraid if they climb up on something at a playground, they might fall off of there and get hurt. Uh, Jennifer and I are kind of the opposite. We're like, yeah, he'll be fine. You know, he'll walk it off. You know, Titus, which Titus could fall off the roof of this building and have an arm laying there beside him. You okay, buddy? I'm fine. That's his default response. But yeah, that we, we, we parent out of fear. We don't want anything bad to happen to our kids. We don't want our kids to get hurt because there's so many things out there that could hurt our kids. There's so many threats to our kids today. And when I really dove into this and, and looked at what certain parents want to protect their kids from, man, it's no different than the stuff I faced 30 years ago. When I was 10 years old, or 50 years ago when my dad was 10 years old, I remember my, my dad telling me stories, and I kind of got to experience, experience this as a kid. We would just take off and explore the neighborhood on our bikes or go find friends and be gone half the day. My parents weren't even home all day long. We, they worked until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so my brother and I would stay home when, when I was about maybe 10 or 11. We'd start staying home all the time. Man, now we don't let our kids out of our sight. We don't want something bad to happen to them. And when I think about it, there's nothing new out there. There was always the threat that I could get snatched as a kid. There's always the threat that somebody could take me and do something. The difference now is we just know about it. We're aware of it because social media puts it right in our face all the time or, or the news puts it right in our face all the time. You don't have to wonder why we're, being, why, why, why we're raising a generation so wrapped up in fear. Just turn the news on. Mass shootings and school shootings have become so routine that we don't even bat an eye anymore. We don't even take time to grieve anymore. We just start a debate. We, we see things that are political in nature, that are divisive, that pull us to one direction or the other. So we pull our kids with us in that. And we pit our kids against one another 
at an early age, older generations, even mine and older, grew up in a world where it was a very black and white moral society. Right and wrong was very clear cut. We knew what they were. Now the colors all blur together. The lines all blur together and morality has been skewed. And this is a generation that's trying to figure this out because they're being told that some things are okay even if the Bible says that they're not. That you can marry whoever you want, that you can change yourself however you want, that you can, you can claim an identity however you want, and that you have to be okay with that. And if not, you're hateful and you're bigoted if you don't do that and agree with that. And it's a generation that's trying to figure this out because they are so confused by what is going on. They're taught that truth is relative to whatever you want it to be. And I think often as, as adults, our default response to this is to look at kids that are maybe 10 years old or 15 years old that are dealing with something or struggling with something, and our response is kids these days. And it's like we blame the kids for being this way, for being this way and responding to a world that we created for them, that we built for them, that we put them into, and blaming kids who are trying to figure the world out. That's the default response with this. I I think about my grandpa, my, my papa. He was kind of a grumpy old man. Everything I did that wasn't the way he would have done it was can't believe you kids these days. Turn that hat around. It doesn't go backwards. Pull them pants up. They're not supposed to hang down that far. Like, I was genetically built this way. They're not going to stay up, okay? (laughs) It's just not going to happen. Your genetics, by the way, thank you. Can't believe you listen to that music. Turn that music down. That's that's terrible music. Guys, I'm 40. I look at our high school students like, why are they dressed that way? What is that music they're like? I've become one of you all. It's happened. I'm not prepared for this yet, and here we are, right? We do this, though. The quicker we we get away and the, the further we get away from a high school, middle school, grade school generation, the harder it is for us to relate to them. I told you earlier, I realized very quickly, I care very, very deeply about this demographic, but I'm not the one that's wired to reach them. And, and as I dove into this this week and in the past weeks and dove into this as a core value, I thought about how so many of us struggle to understand youth today. We, we struggle to understand high school and middle school students or understand kids or understand even young adults and I think the reason that we struggle to understand it is simple. You can't understand something that you aren't willing to invest in. And too many of us don't invest in the next generation. If you decide that you don't want to understand today's youth, it's simple, you won't. If you decide that you'd rather just keep them at a distance, that's exactly what's going to happen. But folks, if that's the case, <laughs> you lose the right to complain about how things are going. You lose the right to complain about maybe how they do things or why they do this or, or why they dress that way or how they answer questions at times if you're not willing to invest in them. I, I have told Phil and Matt this both repeatedly. I told Trevor, my youth pastor I had in Oregon, I think they have one of the most difficult jobs on the planet right now. Not only just trying to relate to, to kids and teenagers, but to teach them about Jesus. in a a world that is changing every single day with a demographic that changes every single day. Even back in the 90s when I was a kid and in in high school, I felt like there wasn't a drastic change in my demographic from like year to year. Maybe over the course of seven, eight years, you would start to see some changes in us, but it wasn't huge and drastic. Now it's like every day. It's something new. And just about the time they get them figured out, 
There's another change. There's another step in a different direction that the world is pulling them into. And I think when it's, we, we see that and we understand that. It's easy for us to just save our energy and save our focus and step away and complain about why things are the way that they are. We fail to understand something that we don't invest in. And I think the reason that we fail to understand it is because we fear what we don't understand. We do. You fear what you don't understand, and I think that's why we struggle for so many people in the church to to dive into and relate to and invest in that generation that's coming behind us. And when you fear something, you tend to back away completely from it. And again, it's easy to understand something that you can't see. Uh, the, the New Testament is full of letters written specifically by the Apostle Paul. He wrote one to a church in Ephesus, and I, I love Ephesians. It's, it's maybe pound for pound one of the most impactful letters that was ever been written. But Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about the grace of God and, and the grace that we get through the blood of Jesus and, and the faith in him is needed and how it's, it restores us to God, and it's just it's amazing. It, it ties us back to the Father. Then he spends the last three chapters connecting us to one another and connecting unity within the church, but he really builds up to it and ties it all off by talking specifically about how we are fighting an enemy that we cannot see, and how all that is necessary to be together and to understand it so we can approach that enemy that we can't see. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says that our struggle is not against the flesh and the blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And he follows this passage, if you're curious, by talking about why we should put on the spiritual armor of God. It's where that all ties in together. Because we're fighting things that we can't see, and if we can't see them, we can't understand them. And I think when we look at this and and say, okay, great, Kurt, we're talking about the next generation. We don't understand it. We fear it. So what do we do about it? Like, where are we going with this? How can we invest in them if we don't understand? Paul tells us, I think, basically right how to do it. In a verse, it's very easy to pass right over. Back a couple of chapters earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, he tells us what we can do as as followers of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, when Paul's starting that passage on how we can relate to one another, he says, I, Paul, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy to the calling you've received. Like, okay, cool, I, I think I do that. Well, that's kind of what we're all supposed to do. Yeah, there's so many verses like this that Paul writes that it's easy to read this and just kind of gloss right past it. But if you break this down, and I want to to break it into three pieces real quick and kind of show you something in this verse that I think helps us understand what this means and why it relates to us as followers of Jesus, setting an example for younger people to see and to follow. Let's go backwards. Start at the end. He says to live a life worthy of the calling. The calling that you've received. And you may say, well, I'm not called. I'm not a pastor. You're called. You're a pastor. You know, the other guys on staff. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, we're called into ministry. And let me just say, I am, I am humbled and honored and blessed that, that I get to do this vocationally. But to be called doesn't mean you're called into vocational ministry. It doesn't mean you're called into something where that gets to be your job or your career. If you are following Jesus, it's because you're responding to a call that he put on your life. Because every time we read about the calling in the New Testament, it's from a divine nature. It's God inviting you along to follow him. And he tells us the calling is to live a life worthy. 
to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. That's the basis of the Christian walk. It's to live a life that honors God. That's a righteous walk. Righteousness is simply right standing with God. It's something that we cannot achieve on our own and will never fully achieve this side of heaven, but it's a walk that we, we live in a life that honors and pleases God. And that's what Paul is telling you. That's how we get to the calling that we've received. We live that life that is, is pleasing and worthy to him. And I love one step back because he says, I urge you to do this. For Paul, this is a plea. This is what he is all about. This can kind of be translated to say, I'm, I'm encouraging you to, I'm begging you to, I'm, I'm urging and, and summoning you to do this and also to do it alongside me. That's what I love about Paul is that he never asks the church to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. He knew the Christian walk was full of sacrifice, that to be righteous was full of sacrifice and that it was costly but yet he was willing to give up everything. And that's why he tells us in 1 Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. Listen to me as I follow him. That's exactly what so many of our people do here today. And that's exactly what we can do to set an example for that next generation. We're blessed and humbled and honored to see the number of you all that, that help with our next generation. We were kind of looking at numbers this, this past week and trying to add them all up. Over the last year, over 60 adults have given their time to help with our, our kids and our, our students. Whether that's serving on a weekly basis down in kids or, or with youth on Wednesdays or Sundays, or maybe that's taking time off and going to camp. I used to think about when I was a kid, we had some of our adults that would take a week of their vacation to go to camp with kids. And they would do that every single year to pour into people like me, to pour into kids that are, are coming up through the church we had over 100 kids and students go to camps and, and conferences and conventions this past year. And not all of those called Crossroads Home, but they came with our group or they came with our kids. And yeah, camp may not, may not change everything, but when a kid's there, they're exposed to something that they're not going to get if they weren't there. It's the opportunity for a seed to be planted, for, for the, the gospel to take root, and a life to be transformed for Jesus. We had 10 kids and students baptized last year. Just in the past year, 10, 10 kids, 10 students surrendered their life to Jesus. And yeah, I hope, I'd love that number to double next year. But, but 10, that's worth celebrating. This is, this is a credit to God and, and the work that he is doing and a credit to those of you who are already investing in our next generation. But despite the, the, the news that's worth celebrating, we have to remember that our students today are fighting a battle and facing, a, I think, a more difficult road than I ever faced. Kids are always going to be kids. Being 15 and 16 years old is always going to be difficult. My, my 10-year-old, we, we, we kind of tease her that every night there's a new existential crisis going on in life. Because she's like me, she's an overthinker in life. She, she, she goes through everything that could possibly go wrong with everything that's about to happen. And some nights I'm like, Elsie, I am too tired for a life-changing crisis tonight. <laughs> Will it still be there tomorrow? Can, can we face it tomorrow? Kids are always going to have these issues that we face. But kids today are facing battles that I know I never faced at that age. They're facing a world that is so different than what I faced. And as a church, if we are going to boldly invest in them, we have to be able to answer the question, how can we fight alongside them? How can we help them fight? And I think the answer is very simple and very complex. We help them fight by fighting with our faithfulness. We set an example for them. We show them what to do, and we do it alongside them. 
Yes, we give of our time and our resources, but we need to take it a step further and, and show them and help them do what we're, what we're called to do. And I look at heroes of the Bible. You do not have to be perfect to be an example. Our heroes of the Bible certainly were not outside of Jesus. Abraham was, was talked about for his faithfulness, and yet he was faithful even in the midst of doubts that he had even in the midst of questions that he might have had. Moses was faithful, even in the midst of the frustration of the world that he didn't like around him. And the people around him that that complained and grumbled and questioned, he remained faithful. Joshua remained faithful, even in the midst of insecurities, in the midst of self-doubt. David remained faithful, even in the midst of a mess of his own making. He remained faithful. We can do the same. And here's how. Four things that we can do every day to radically and boldly invest in our next generation and show them how to fight with faithfulness. The first is we pray for them and we pray with them. If you've got a student or a kid in our our, our church ministry, in kids ministry, in high school, middle school ministry, pray with them. If you've got grandkids, pray with them. If you don't, get a list of names and pray for them by name. Matt or Phil would give you some names that you could be praying for our kids every day. You have no idea the impact that's going to make on our kids if they see you praying with them. I think back to my mom. I think back to my my grandma especially. Watching her pray for us is still to this day has an impact on me. I know that she's still praying for me every day now at 40 years old. We were at my cousin's wedding uh, last summer. I think I told you the story my cousin Maggie's wedding, and uh, my grandma was sitting the seat in front of me, kind of in front of me, one seat over, so I could, I could see the side of her face. And uh, they had a time where Michael and Maggie took communion together, and then they said, would everybody just extend your hands forward and pray for Michael and Maggie? And I did the total little kid thing. I was just looking around at everybody. <laughs> like, that guy doesn't have his eyes closed over there, you know? But I watched my grandma, and I told my mom later, I didn't hear what she said, but I knew exactly what she said. Because I've heard that prayer that she prayed time and time again. Pray with and for our kids. Number two, read the word with them. Spend time in the word with them. If you've got kids at home, spend time reading with them. Maybe it's not part of your daily Bible reading plan. Jump in and read with them anyway. Because it's going to help them to to encourage them to know you're reading alongside them. And they're going to have questions. And if you read alongside them, maybe you can help them out. But number kind of two on this, have the humility to maybe tell them, I don't know the answer to that. Let's see if we can find it out together. Don't pretend to be the expert. Speaking of which, number three, listen to them. Listen to them. Listen to your kids. I'll be honest, this is a, this is a tough one for me. The older I get, the more I relate to people who are older, which means the more I don't like to listen to people who are younger. Why? Because I've been there. I already know all of that. (laughs) Again, I've become one of you all, you know. (laughs) used to frustrate me when when older people would just disregard me. And now I can catch myself being guilty of the same thing. Folks, our kids are just like us. They just want to be heard. They want to be valued. And we cannot hope to understand what they're going through if we say, well, we went through that. My dad used to tell me, there's nothing you can even think about doing that I haven't already done. Well, maybe that's true, but you did it in the 70s. I did it in the 90s. Now my kids are doing it 
in the 20s. It's different. The world around us is different. And you can't possibly understand what kids today are facing if you're not willing to listen to them. You don't have to let them be the experts on the world, but they can at least fill you in on the context. Besides that, we're, we're told and commanded in Scripture to listen. Proverbs uh, chapter 18 says, the one who gives an answer before he listens, this is foolishness and disgrace for him. So listen to our kids. And number four, serve with them. I know many of you in this room are ministry team leaders. Many of you in this room serve on teams right now. Man, let our kids serve alongside you. I can think back to being 12, 13 years old and getting to tag along with a guy named Steve doing the adult jobs at the church, taking up offering, opening the doors, stuff that, you know, just the grown guys got to do, but I got to do that. And it probably was no big deal to him whatsoever, but it meant the world to me. It gave me a chance to serve. Being taught by one of our older guys in the church how to run a soundboard, how to, how to adjust different things on there. Because it's very easy as adults especially to look at kids, especially as saying, you're just kind of getting in the way. We've got a job, we've got to get it done but they just want to serve alongside us. They want to help. And when they serve, a couple of things happen. Number one, you get a chance to be a mentor. But number two, they get encouragement. And, and they, get, they get to watch and see an example. Folks, never be the reason a kid doesn't want to serve in the church. Never be a, a reason that somebody grows up and says, you know what, I never had a place there, so I'll just go find a place somewhere else. We don't want to be that. We want our kids and our students to dive in and serve God and to, to see the joy that comes from that. We want to boldly invest, folks, in our next generation. I, I told you this a few weeks ago when I stepped up here for the first Sunday after the transition ended. And, and I've, I've said this since I got here with my interview even, that Brad built a strong, wonderful, healthy church. And I firmly believe that, and I'm so grateful for it. But I hope that when I hand it off to the next guy some year, however many years down the road, that it's so much stronger and so much healthier than it is today. And that does not happen. It does not happen if we're not investing in our next generation. I want to illustrate that for you this morning. We're going to kind of wrap up with a little bit of a different twist by just showing you the fruits of investing in our next generation. Watch this.
This is just how I think about communion, because I heard that you're talking about that, and they asked me to come up here and do this. So, uh, God made us in his image, but we sinned and separated ourselves from him. We needed a savior, so God sent Jesus to earth to die on the cross for us. He shed his blood on the cross so we could be redeemed to God and go to heaven. To remember this, we take communion. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We, when we take this communion, we remember that Jesus died on the cross for us so we could be able to believe in him and be forgiven of our sins. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Please bless this bread and this juice as we take it. In Jesus' name, amen.